Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Thanks for tuning in to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. The original broadcast date for this episode was January 10th, 2019. In 2018, Lieutenant Mickey Comboy was recognized with the FDNY's highest annual award for valor he displayed in the rescue of occupants at a fire in the South Bronx. Most recently, he received the FDNY's most prestigious award for valor, the Dr. Harry Archer Medal. Lieutenant Conboy has more than 35 years with the FDNY. He is presently assigned to Rescue Company 3 in the Bronx and previously served as a lieutenant in Squad Company 41 and a firefighter in Engine Company 79, Ladder Company 37, and Rescue Company 3. Lieutenant Conboy is an adjunct instructor at the FDNY Fire Academy and the FDNY's Technical Rescue School. He was instrumental in the development of course curriculum for advanced firefighter victim removal training for FDNY Special Operations Command firefighters and fire officers. External recognition aside, he's also experienced quiet moments of accomplishment and fulfillment in the fire service and in his personal life as a father and grandfather. Lieutenant Conboy, welcome. Thank you, Patty. Thank you for having me here today. It's a privilege to be here with you. So, Mickey, we've known each other for several years now, so we're on a first-name basis. Good. I appreciate that. (laughs) Um, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to you, but when we first met, we were working on a project together, and I reached out to you via email asking for approval, and you called me back, and unfortunately, I missed the call, but you left me a voicemail, and in it, you gave me your approval, and you also went out of your way to say that I was doing a good job. And I actually held on to that voicemail and listened to it more than once, because <laughs> honestly, coming from you, hearing that I was doing a good job on a project for the FDNY that I thought was very important carried a lot of weight. For those not in the fire service... Can you talk about what types of fires and emergencies Rescue 3 responds to? Yeah, we respond to all working fires in the Bronx. Our response area is the entire borough of the Bronx and 117th Street north of Manhattan. So it's a large area, over 40 square miles. And all fires in that area and any fire where a person is reported trapped, they start out the rescue company. And then besides the fires, we respond to all kinds of emergencies where people may be trapped, extrications, whether it's automobiles, Subways, trains, machinery. Some people are caught on road iron fences over the years. We get involved with removing from that. Construction workers get caught on rebar in these building constructions that they are operating in. People get trapped in elevators and escalators. Building collapses, trench. We're digging these buildings. A lot of construction going on throughout the city and the outer boroughs, especially with the trenches that they cave in and we have workers trapped. Confined spaces, whether it's in tunnels, tanks, vaults, barges, ships, Throughout the city, we respond to all of those scaffold emergencies here in Manhattan, up in Manhattan, even the Bronx. Now we're putting up uh, high rises. Mm -hmm. It's a big thing. And then a big thing that we respond to now is uh, water rescues. So we're putting our divers in the water for that. But the winter coming up, the ice, 
right. kids fall through the ice, unfortunately, and we get involved with that. So we're operating all kinds of incidents where people become trapped. So the rescue company is very diverse with that and a lot of experience there, and that's how we uh, respond. So it's a very challenging job, but it's a very rewarding job at the same time. Right. What do you consider to be the most challenging type of operation? Well, by far the most challenging operation, anything that we respond to, whether it's a fire emergency, is where people are trapped in a life-threatening situation where the decisions and our actions are going to make the decision or determination if these people live or die. So mm-hmm. that's by far. At the pinnacle, I'd have to say, the tip of those fear of those incidents is where another firefighter is trapped. That's why the rescue companies were formed in New York City uh, over 100 years ago. And still to this day, the company is tasked with a firefighter's trap. So by far, that is the most challenging that we operate In 2018, you received the James Gordon Bennett Medal, which is awarded for the most outstanding act of heroism in the FDNY for rescuing a man and child trapped in a fire in 2017. Can you talk about that experience? First off, I'd like to say that uh, I'm very honored and humbled by the department uh, bestowing that recognition on me. I accept it on behalf of all the members working that night, and it really is a team effort what we do in fighting a fire like that when we get a call where... They told us the dispatchers are outstanding. The Bronx dispatchers told us right away that we had people trapped. It was an extremely cold winter night, I remember. It was the week before Christmas, so people are thinking about Christmas. And here's somebody's Christmas going up in flames. So that was my thoughts going out the door that night, that we had a serious fire. And uh, the company had just responded to three fires in as many months, maybe weeks, at that time where people were trapped. Mm -hmm. So it was fresh on my mind, and we had uh, two previous fires where we had eight people trapped, and a company out of the the company, Rescue 3, had operated at these and had made uh, six rescues. So it was a very busy time for us and poignant that here we are at Christmas and here we go again that Mm -hmm. we had people trapped. So when we got there, I just remember uh, we had water problems right away, Engine 82 had problems with the hydrant. The fire was blowing out. We had a heavy fire condition. And what got my attention right away was Ladder 31's officer gave a transmission that they had found one victim right away. Mm -hmm. So I knew there were people. Mm -hmm. And besides that, people were in the street screaming that kids were trapped inside. So that turns up our uh, Mm -hmm. operation big time. So we were operating... And then we get assignments from the chief, and the chief told me that night to uh, split the company. He needed us to check the house next door with uh, fires extending and also to help with the searches with 31 truck because the second new truck was not in yet. So I split the company. People were saying that the kids were trapped in the front, so I told my inside team to go up the front and told my outside team to check the house and let me know, get back right away. And I just tried to get in the front door, so... Uh, it was very chaotic there. 82 engine was having a problem with the water. The truck was just coming out. And I asked him, do you have anybody else searching? He said, no. So I said, all right. So now I got to get up there. So I get up and fortunately it was the front bedroom and I found the tools right away. So I said, oh, this is where they stop. So I'll start from here. And I got to the window and the fire was blowing. And I went to the window. The window had failed. And I just remember reaching down under the window and the feeling the human body. And it was like a little boy. He was eight years old, which I didn't think he was eight. When I picked him up, I realized his pants were on fire. 
So I threw him on the bed and patted him down, get the flames out, and I realized he was unconscious. There was no life. So now time is of essence. I crawled out into the hallway with him, hand him to another firefighter, said, get him downstairs. Went back in, and I found the uh, grandfather, it turns out. He was 89 years old. The boy was eight. And now the fire's really coming in, so I had one of my firefighters get a door because, again, 82-inch and didn't have water yet, and now we're upstairs and we have no water, so the fire's going to get us shortly. So I had him get a door off another room and put it over the window so we could get out and not be caught with the fire. So we got out, fortunately, in seconds, and uh, firefighter Lucas Nishkinen from 31 Truck did a great job finding the mother and got her out, and all the brothers in the street that night that did CPR, all three of them survived and are alive today. So it was a great honor just to see the guys come together like that. It was a great team effort. All the companies operated that night, and a week before Christmas, I was told uh, Christmas morning they were all out of our hospital and home wow. with their family. So. That's what I remember from that. So it was a great honor, and I was very humbled to receive the recognition. I tried to get the chief to uh, just write the guy from 31, but he wasn't going to hear of that. So (laughs) the rest is history. In addition to being recognized for the fire that you just described, you're highly decorated, having received medals and citations on many other occasions. External recognition aside, can you tell me about some quiet moments that took place during your career that are personally significant in terms of accomplishment or fulfillment and why that's the case? The greatest thing that we have uh, afforded to us as firemen in New York City is we're given an opportunity every day we go to work to help someone. And when we do, it's a great sense of fulfillment and satisfaction that we were just able to help someone. And it's not always in a dramatic way of somebody caught in a building fire or emergency that they're trapped just that they need help, and they reach out to us because they know we're going to help them. A recent thing that I remember and felt a great sense of uh, fulfillment was a simple, uh, we were out shopping one day on Arthur Avenue in the Bronx, and one of my men said, you remember that place? (laughs) (laughs) Good food. And we get to uh, shop there, and one of my members was talking to an elderly gentleman, and he said, hey, Lou, where's Gates Avenue? So I thought he was quizzing me because he's always saying, like, where do you, where do we go in the Bronx? So I get off the rig. I saw it was an elderly gentleman. I said, maybe he's going to visit somebody or what? So I said, let me talk to him. So it was only a couple minutes, and I realized he was starting to suffer from the beginning stages of dementia or Alzheimer's. He was very forgetful. But he knew where he lived. So he told me where he lived, and I said, sure, I know where that is. He goes, you sure? I go, I know where that is. They go, he knows every place in the Bronx. So I says... Forget that. So I looked it up and saw that where he told me was a two-story private house. So I just asked him, I said, is there somebody home right now if we brought you home? And he looked at me like, what do you mean? You're going to bring me home? So a little little old lady, Italian lady on the corner says, "Uh, Mr. It's your lucky day. These firemen are the best. Mm. They're going to take you home. And I realized he walked for eight miles. And he was away from home for a long time. And I'm sure his wife was very concerned. And when we got there, his mother, or his wife rather, was at the front door and tears were coming down her face. And I says, is this who she is? And she said, absolutely. And she says, my son is never going to believe this. I says, why wouldn't he believe it? My son, believe it or not, is a New York City fireman also. As it turns out, one of the men working with me that day knew him, called him, and told him we had his father safe and sound. And later that day, we had a job, and the company heard about it, and it was like, hey, you guys are great, blah, blah. I says, that's what we do. We help people. But 
my chauffeur is a real senior guy, and he said, Lou, as long as I've been here, that's one of the best things we ever did for anybody. I says, Bob, that's what we do. We help people. And I says, exactly, that's what we do. We help people. And that's what it is. And a big thing that we get in the firehouse today is a lot of veterans mm -hmm. or active military members stop by, and they just want to visit a New York City firehouse after 9-11. And it's a great thing, and I think it's we're always open doors for them, sit and talk. They're great guys. We uh, really enjoy every time they do stop by. Their families are there with us. Recently, we had some training opportunities where we op actually gave training of how to force entry and how to uh, operate in fires with the special op community and the military. It was a great opportunity. They really loved it. And when they came back from one operation, they called and told us how much it was helpful to them. So we said, it's great that we could help our greatest warriors to protect this country each day. Now we can give something back to them. So it was a great thing. I spoke at a recent 9-11 uh, ceremony. I was asked to speak with Danny Murphy, you know, mm -hmm. as well. And uh, first off, I said, you sure you want me? Jason asked, I said, you sure you want me? What am I going to say to our nation's greatest warriors? He goes, no, you two are the best that we want you to talk. So we did. And afterwards, it was an incredibly honorable day to be in their presence on 9-11 and these are the greatest warriors that we were with. So it's absolutely an opportunity, and it's afforded to us as the FDNY because of what happened on 9-11, that we have a common bond and a strong relationship with our military members today. And it's something that I cherish, and I love it every time that we get involved in that. And again, another way to give back. And the greatest, besides that, I would say, is our fallen families, the brothers that we've lost over the years, and fortunately or unfortunately, there's been several in my company. And when they're in your company, it's very personal. And still, I always remember Al Ronison was the first member that uh, close personal friend that I lost 27 years ago. And to this day, I watched those kids grow up because I remember the day that he died. He relieved me, and I got a phone call in the middle of the night. There was an accident at work, and I said, an accident? It can't be an accident. Nikki just drove us home. He was one of the guys we worked with. He was having a couple of accidents with the rig at the time. And on the lightest side, we said, it can't be. He just drove us home. <laughs> I said, Mickey, wake up. It's Al Ronaldson. He's dead. And my heart broke. When I got off the phone, my wife said to me, uh, what's wrong? Who is it? I said, it's Al Ronaldson. He's dead. And her first reaction was, they're neighbors of ours. Oh, my God, those five kids. What are we going to do? I go, that's it. I jumped up out of bed. And ever since, those kids have been a part of my family and my life. I watched them all grow, the communions, the confirmations, the weddings. It's great. And just recently, last year, Al's oldest son just came to the rescue company. I work with him. And having him in the company has made the wheel go f full to circle. So it's great. Again, it's another thing, working with the uh, guys, but being part of their families, especially the guys that are no longer here. So having been blessed with a long, healthy career, it's an opportunity to Again, it is afforded me, and I take great pride in it, taking care of the kids today. So. so in the fire service, retrospective reflection often centers on operations that went wrong in terms of outcomes for the public and for firefighters. What do you think of that reflection being centered on things that went wrong versus things that went well? Well, I always said that we always uh, put a great deal of effort into what do we do wrong. But we never look at what we did right so we can do it right again. And 90% of the time, it goes right. And the guys do a great job. 
so many nights that we uh, operate and so days that we operate. But we should put more of an emphasis, I think. Why did, why did it go right? There's a lot of things that did it. Like I say, when something goes wrong, all the dominoes got to line up. It's never just one thing that goes wrong. It's always several things. And if one individual, one firefighter could change that, it would change the outcome. And that's why we say the important, when you see something wrong, correct it. And if we all correct it, we'll never read about that. And we do these case studies and we talk about, oh, I had an incident like that and this happened. You never heard about that, right? They go, yeah, because we corrected the actions before it went wrong and then we were only able to learn ourselves. And now we pass it on here in a class like that that we can all learn from it. So I think it's a great thing that we do talk about these. And what we do is in the company I know, we talk about a roll call. We have a roll call every time we start a tour at 9 o'clock in the morning, 6 o'clock at night. And we first thing I do is ask or talk about is recent fires and not what went wrong, what went right, and why did it go right. Now that we've covered successful operations for the most part, what do you find to be the weakest link when it comes to human performance in firefighting? And what needs improvement in the profession? I think that the firefighting profession as a whole is in its infancy stages and understanding how important human performance is and how much the mental performance really is a part of our profession. And I think once you talk to senior guys, and we thought we were going to have a problem getting the senior guys to understand and to buy in, and they go, oh, no, I already do that. It's just I didn't have that understanding or I didn't have a name for that. But I've been doing it, and I do it this way. And we all had a common ground that way. And the newer guys are just more excited that, oh, this is great. It's going to make me better because everybody wants to do a good job. But you're in a good company. You want to make the company better. As we always say, leave the place better when you leave here. So I really think that the profession is going to get better mm-hmm. now that we understand what we're doing. As I say, I try to introduce it without them even knowing it. And when they see that, they're like, because there's two things firefighters don't like, change and the way it is. And that's just the way it is. <laughs> I and one of my shows said that. It's <laughs> funny, but it's true. But if I can get them to realize it without them realizing I'm introducing change, they're much more accepting. And I've been pretty uh, successful that they say, yeah, you're right about that. And some of the guys that I thought would be the hardest to understand it or, oh, no, that's great. They're the biggest proponents of it. So it really is once you do it in a way that it's not challenging them or making them feel uncomfortable with change, they are all in on this. And they, let's face it, everybody wants to be better at what we do. Mm-hmm. So it's not a hard thing. So I just try to do it without them realizing. <laughs> and so far it's been pretty good. Some of them still don't realize I'm doing (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of mental performance and human performance, you've been actively involved in the development of the FDNY's mental performance initiative. That's what you're talking about here. What are one or two behavioral changes that you've made regarding your own preparation and execution during fires and emergencies? Well, the big thing is it gave me a greater understanding of how our minds and our mental performance really comes about and how the mind functions. And once you get that understanding, it enabled me basically to put much more time into my preparation and training and then allow that I'm very comfortable on a fire ground. I don't think. I just totally react and go on my experience and instincts. And I know I have 
a lot of experience and good instincts, and I feel much more comfortable, and I actually make better decisions now, consciously not thinking. And I think sometimes that's what it is. It's like anything we do, whether we're playing sports or fighting fires, we overthink it. That's how you choke or you panic and you don't think enough. Well, I just don't think at all. And I feel very comfortable understanding that the conscious, the decisions are made in my mind for me. And I really think just getting that understanding with the mental performance Mm -hmm. greatly made me understand it better, but made me at ease at a fire operation where I really don't think about it. I just go on instincts in my experience. And the biggest thing I think personal change was understanding how important it is that mentally what we do is controlled by our breath. And once I had that and I had a perfect uh, unscientific test I did one night where we had two fires on the top floor hours apart. So I was in the same physical shape and it was nothing different, nothing. It was the same night. And I did one fire, I did nothing. And the next fire, I did the breathing exercise. And when I got to the fire the first time, I felt like I got, I ran up six flights of stairs and I was winded. When I did the breathing exercise, I got to the top floor, I said, wow, I feel like a 19-year-old kid. And it really made me realize it was just changed. The only thing I changed was the breath. So it greatly drove home the point that there is a lot to the breathing. And one of the classes, uh, we had one of uh, uh, Navy uh, special operators talking to us, and he told me how he used the breath and what he does. And I said, well, if it can work for him, then it's definitely got to work for me. He said, where were you speaking at the conference? He was nervous. And he's going through his breathing exercise. I said, you're worried about talking to a bunch of knucklehead firemen? <laughs> we're all looking at you. He goes, yeah, I am. <laughs> So one time I had that same experience. I was doing a thing at the academy, and I just felt myself getting nervous, and I just went through the breathing exercise, and it really did totally change the way I felt. And I performed differently too. So there is a lot to that. And I had one experience, I think I related, where I had a company, we were operating a fire, and I just did the breathing when I realized that I just went over to a company and showed them something. And then when they realized that I was totally calm and they were going off the backside of the curve, as they say. But just by talking to them, putting my arm on them, it physically reset them, and their breathing totally changed, and they did a great job. So understanding the different ways that the mind works and being able to apply it on the fire ground now has greatly aided me in understanding that we can do a much better job once we understand how it works. And then how do you apply it? So I always say it's great, the uh, mental side, but how do I get it to the, from my head to my hands where mm-hmm. I can get the others to understand it and myself to understand it? And that big thing to me was the breathing part. So, And I know a lot of guys were always asking about that. How does the breathing mm-hmm. actually work into it? And it is very basic, but and there's different ways for everybody. It doesn't have to be one set way. Right. But as long as we understand, you know, like I talk to other guys and they do it a different way, that's great if it works. So it does have a great thing. So breathing and... An understanding of how the mind works has greatly aided me in my performance. So I hope it helps others. I'm sure it will, and I'm sure it's helping today. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Considering that your company is equipped with a number of different tools and state-of-the-art technology, as the company officer, what tool on Rescue 3's rig do you consider to be the most important then? By far, the most important tool that we carry on that rig is the 
tool that each of the firefighters carries on their shoulder, their mind, the brain. And like we say, once we put our minds together to think and come up with a solution to the problem that we face, whether it's a person trapped, a tough fire, or just a mechanical problem that we're faced with, nothing is impossible and achievable because we rely on each other and we've always been able to do that. So the tools will able us to carry the job out, but it's the mind that makes those tools work. I could give the tool to my daughter who's 25 years old and has no firefighting background at all, and she can figure out because she has a good mind. And that's the whole thing. She could figure out how to use that tool. So it's not the tool. Rather, it's the firefighters and their mind, the way they figure it out. So by far, it's the greatest tool that we carry is the guys. And again, we have guys with a lot of experience, and they've been through a lot of different uh, operations and stuff like that. So a lot of talent, different backgrounds that they bring to the company, and that's the great thing with the company, that we have different backgrounds in the company. Guys can operate heavy machinery, tools, carpenters, plumbers, electricians, iron workers. Those are all great things when we get to an operation. I don't have to know everything. And I know one thing, the longer I stay on the job, I realize how much more guys know and how great it is as a boss just knowing any given night I can just turn to one, two, three guys and just knowing their different traits and experiences and they'll figure it out for me. And they'll just put it all together and they make the company look and the department look great. So it's really knowing your personnel and putting it together. And that's the great thing about being a boss. I don't know it all. I just put it all together for them. And that's the way we do it. How important is trust then in firefighting? Trust is everything. Trust is like anything in any relationship. Without it, we have nothing. And being in a life and death situation, if my life is in their hands, I have to trust them. And I know they trust me. And the biggest thing that we always say is, I'm never going to let my brother down. I can die trying, and I accept that. And that risk of, like we say, would you risk your life? Of course we would. But I always say, we risk a life to save a life. We risk nothing to save nothing. And for the brothers, if we're in a situation, if that's what happens, that's what happens. But trust is everything to us, everything, in every relationship, but especially what we do. Trust is everything. And if you betray that trust, sometimes you never recover from it. You never get back. And that's the reason sometimes people leave the company, people leave the department, because they betrayed that trust to us, on and off duty. And that's another thing, too. A lot of things that we do, you have to be professional on and off duty. That Everybody knows I'm a New York City firefighter. If I do something stupid, everybody's going to know about it. So I can't trade the trust of the department, and I can't betray the trust of the men that I work with. So trust is huge. Many firefighters talk about the strength of the kitchen table. Can you explain to those outside of the fire service who are listening what that means? The kitchen table is uh, something very unique to us in the uh, fire department, the fire you know, profession. But as we say, it's a great equalizer. And uh, it'll pick us up if we're feeling down and definitely knock you down a few pegs if you're uh, getting too high, too big for your own britches. But it's a great therapy for all firefighters to attend on a regular basis. It keeps us focused on what we do. It bonds us together. The bond is very strong there. And for a new guy coming in, it takes a lot to earn our trust and their trust. But it happens right there at the kitchen table. I've learned more probably at the kitchen table than I've learned anywhere in this world. 
And it's just not about firefighting. It's about relations. It's about family. It's about everything we do. It's about life. And the guys are tremendous. We are really blessed that we work with such a great group of guys. But the kitchen table is where it all happens. We eat there. We solve all the problems of the world there. (laughs) It's a very unique place. During your career, you've had to endure and absorb failure and loss. As your career progressed, how has the way you've dealt with loss adapted? Did you use the kitchen table to help you deal with some of that? The kitchen table definitely helps after a loss. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I remember the first loss. I mentioned Al Ronison earlier. That was the first loss that I had. I remember just wanting to get back to work right away. I know some people want to take off. I think that was the worst. I think still today. When we have a bad fire or a bad incident, I want to get back into the firehouse right away and get right back into doing what we do. And again, that kitchen table is great for everything, sharing everything. And there's some things that are very personal in a fire that you're only going to share with the brothers that you were there with. So by all means, the kitchen table is a big part of that. And then the biggest part, I think, as I try to say to everyone, is acceptance. There is some things that we're going to see and there's some things we're going to do that aren't the best or the worst is like that when we lose someone. But once you accept that this is real and we're going through this together, it makes us all stronger. As I say, times like that, I think you're introduced to who you really are. Mm. And it's a lot about character and who we are. And some people just don't like who they're introduced to. And others get stronger in tough situations. The strong get stronger, the weak get weaker, and everybody else finds out they weren't who they really thought they were. But it truly is a place that, uh, and over the years, acceptance is really what's helped me. I know from experience that it's a real part of our job. It's not a good part of it or part I'd rather to see. But I know as long as we go into burning buildings that things are going to go wrong and things happen. As uh, somebody uh, used to say to me, a chief friend of mine said, uh, be safe tonight. I would just say, John, if I wanted to be safe, I'd stay at home on the deck with my wife. That's safe. Once I go in that burning building, there's nothing safe. And that's not a bravado thing. It's just a reality. It's real. And sometimes it's not the fire at all. It's the building that gets us. Or another factor, the unseen or the unknown. But I accept that. And we all accept that as part of our job. And we know that. And it's just something that, like we say, that's what courage or bravery is. Of course we get fear. Fear is a definite factor that's there. But accepting it and still doing what we do is a very important part of it. So think that pretty much sums it up yeah i just want to pause for a minute and digest that that's pretty powerful (laughs) you have more than 30 years with the fdny as a leader with all this experience how do you help optimize performance with the people that you work with when i became a boss several years ago 15 years ago now i think uh i learned a long time ago uh you lead by example and that's the best uh, I always looked up to the bosses that led by example, that talked the talk and walked the walk. And first and foremost, I learned respect when I was a young kid from my father. And if I wanted to get it, I had to give it first. So being a boss, I learned if you give respect, you're going to get it. And I've never had a situation where I didn't get the respect. The men have been outstanding. So being professional And everything I say and do is also part of it, on and off duty. I know I'm accountable to myself, and I'm responsible to myself and my actions at all times. So if I act professional, 
the Menelik professional. And then the constant preparation and the training that we do, as I said before, mastering the basics. The basics, if we can master the basics, that's the best way to keep our skills honed and be at the top of our game each and every time we go out the door. And then slowly and inconspicuously, as I say, introduce enhancing the mental performance side of it and doing it where they don't realize we're really doing it. Just planting seeds. <laughs> yes, as we do. We plant seeds very good. But it's a great way to do it. I think, you know, I, I learned it that way, and I try to do it. If it worked for me, then hopefully it'll work for others. You have a great deal of experience in a rescue company and have been involved in developing curriculum for the FDNY. Can you talk about that? The classes that I've been involved in helping develop were uh, the biggest one was the uh, advanced firefighter rescue class that we do at the uh, rescue school. And all it was is after uh, 9-11, we realized we lost a tremendous amount of experience in the job. But we looked around and we said we still have a tremendous amount of experience. So in uh, 2004, 2005, we uh, took all the senior officers and senior firefighters in the command and we sat down together and we collectively took our experiences and different incidents that we had where firefighters were trapped and we put together a program. And that program was our experience. And as Danny Murphy puts it best, it's not what we did right to teach them. It's what we learned from each of these experiences. And we only talk about the fires that you were at, so you get a firsthand information. And in the 10 years that we've been doing it, or more than 10 years now, we've lost a tremendous amount more of guys in that experience. Rather than being lost, was captured at a moment in time, and now we can pass it on to the brothers that are coming into the uh, companies on new on a job, and now we can have that experience because we were able to capture it at that time. So that was probably one of the best things that we ever were able to do is that moment in time capture the experience we had. On that note, have you experienced any setbacks or made any mistakes that have been particularly distressing or formative? And if so, how did you recover and bounce back? Well, I think the greatest things I've learned on the job was from the loss of the brothers over the course of the years. And I, again, I looked at them a hundred times, a hundred times. And I always try to say, what can I do? What could I do to change this fire if I go to this fire again tonight? And that we don't have a loss of a brother. But that's the greatest thing that I've always tried to uh, take away from the job was the loss of the brother. But as I say, they didn't die in vain. The lessons that we learned from their death is what makes us stronger and better prepared today. So I don't ever want to think, you know, we lost a brother and he died in vain. I always take those lessons with me. I always say their spirit will be with me and the rest of the brothers forever. The families are never forgotten. And we truly do remember our fallen. So that's the greatest lessons that we could learn is the life lessons that they gave us and the loss of their lives. What role does faith play in your life and work? Uh, faith is huge. Faith is everything. Uh, again, like trust. I was raised in a staunch Irish Catholic family, and I learned a long, long time ago how important faith was in your life. And sometimes I learned it with fire and brimstone, and sometimes I learned it with tough love, or I learned it by example. And the greatest was the example that my mother and father 
and my three brothers taught me long before I was ever a New York City fireman the true meaning of brotherhood and the true meaning of family and what, how important it was to me. So faith is huge. And then I can honestly say each tough time I had something go wrong in a job, a loss of a brother or a tough fire, faith is what carried me through. And I always said the uh, stars at night shine brightest on the darkest nights, and that's really where your faith in it really does give me great comfort knowing I have my faith because I draw a great strength from it. And I pray for the people who don't because I think they're the ones who struggle the most with loss and tough times in life because they don't have that faith. And I just feel very strong and very blessed that I do have it and I'm very strong in it. So, yeah, faith is huge to us. And in the department, we all have it. So it's a great part of it. I think without it, you're at a great disadvantage. So, yeah, it means everything to me. You mentioned your daughter before. You and I actually are friends on Facebook. And I remember when one of your grandsons was born, you posted a picture and a caption. And the joy and pride that was pouring out of you made me misty just looking at it. And I had to reach out to you directly and congratulate you. Can you talk about your family and describe how that helps you? Uh, the family is, again, it's huge. It's everything. I mean, my media family, my wife has been my best friend and partner for over 30 years that we've been married. And I always say it's great going to work, but the greatest thing is going home and being with her and the kids. And then having been blessed with the three greatest gifts of my life was my three children my wife gave me is Timmy, Maddie, and Colleen. Timmy's an iron worker in the city. We built the Trade Center right next to over here. And uh, Maddie has uh, served eight years in the Army. He's out now, and he's in his second year at uh, Penn State Med School. He wants to be a doctor, a cardiologist. I said, hurry up, get back, and take care of the old man. <laughs> and my daughter, Colleen, as you said, is uh, a nurse. She's an RN nurse. She's working in a CCU unit in a hospital upstate. And again, it's great. I tease my wife all the time. We don't have to worry about Obamacare. We got Maddie and Colleen here. <laughs> so I'm very proud of the three kids. They're all doing great in life. And Timmy's blessed us with two grandchildren, uh, Michael and Quinn. And just recently, uh, Timmy and Maddie have told us that their wives are pregnant with a third and fourth child. Congratulations. Third and fourth grandchildren. So, yes, it is a blessing. And Colleen just got engaged, so. Yeah, her husband is Johnny, and uh, he's a great guy. As I t t tell her all the time, I says, uh, Colleen, you know what I don't love about Johnny? Nothing. I couldn't have built a better guy for you. So having one daughter and having a guy that's great, it really is a blessing. So home, family is unbelievable. It's great. And it gives me so much joy and strength in my life that I have such a great support system like that. So family is huge. And it's everything. The second family I'm blessed with is the firehouse. You know, the men I work with and the honor, the privilege to go to work with these men each and every night is truly just that, an honor. And then I get to go home and be with the wife and the kids and now the grandkids. So it's great. It's a great blessing. And I'm very blessed to have such a happy family at home and such a happy family in the firehouse. So thank you. I'm Misty again. Oh, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> We ask each each guest who comes on what they think is unique and important about leadership under fire. What are your thoughts on that? It's 
I think it's very unique in the sense that it challenges each and every one of us in the fire department and fire service across the country and brings together people with a common want to make everything better in, in our personal lives or professional lives. And I think Jason has put together a team that is outstanding. And I learned from each and every one of these experiences from the newest guy to the most senior guy. And the longer I do it, I start to say I'm a little bit more senior than I thought. But I really do think it's great to interact with others and the way he goes about it in such a unique way. And again, to bring the mental side of the operations that we do, which never been touched before. So, yeah, I think it's making the whole job that much better. So as we say, leave it better than when we got here. I think in years from now, we'll look back on this and say, wow, that was really a transformational part of the uh, fire service when we started to do this. So I think it's a great thing. You know, the profession is going to definitely benefit from it. And ultimately, the people benefit. So we'll all be better off for it. I feel better off for speaking to you today. So thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> well, thank you, Patty. It's an honor and privilege to be here, and I thank you for having me. Thank you. Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.